We're going to be looking at John chapter 17 this morning, and we are continuing our series on prayer. This week and next, we are going to be looking at the topic of how to pray. Today, we're going to be looking at the example of Jesus, and next week, James will look at the teaching of Jesus. John 17 has quickly become perhaps my favorite chapter in the entire Bible. Chapter 17 is amazing. It's amazing because it's a prayer. And it's a prayer not God speaking to us or us speaking to God, but it's a conversation among the Godhead. The Son is speaking to the Father. And the Father is speaking to the Son. And in chapter 17, we get to hear, overhear, a conversation among the Trinity. This is amazing. Some preachers have even preached over 50 sermons from this one chapter. And we are going to cover it in 20 minutes. So let's start with verse 1, found on page 903. It says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's maybe receive it. Let's pray. Holy and heavenly Father, that is 
our prayer that we might behold the face of Christ this morning. Lord, even the greatest teacher, Jesus, prayed that you would make his teaching effective. I ask for the same thing in his name. Do your work in our hearts and minds through your word. Sanctify us with your truth. Amen. A seminary professor of mine told this story. He told this story about one of the first missionaries to go into China after the bamboo curtain was lifted. He described this fellow as sort of a hefty guy, a biker dude, because he was about 6'5", and he was thick. He stood out in China, but he was fluent in Chinese, and he loved the Chinese people. He was one of the first people to go back into China. And as he was there, he heard about this woman in one of the villages. He heard that she was the only believer in her village, that she had been persecuted, that she had been ostracized, that she had been hated. So he sought to get a meeting with this woman, and you can imagine her fear and trepidation. She agreed to meet him at his hotel. And the way that he tells the story, as he heard her walking down the hall, it sounded like the footsteps of an elephant. And then as she got to the door, he heard this loud knock. And he opened up the door and he went to hug her and embrace her as a sister in Christ. He was a hugger, like James is. And instead, the woman looked at the man and said, Stop. Stop what you're doing. Sit down and shut up. And he said, What? He said, she said, you heard me, shut up and pray. So he got down on his knees and he began to pray. And then as he looked up, this woman was beginning to cry and she was sobbing. And she said to him, you're real. You're my brother. Now let me hug you. You see, she was testing him to make sure that he really was a believer. You can tell a lot about a person by the way that they pray. You can learn a lot from Jesus and how he prays. So this morning we're going to look at four ways. We're going to look at the example of Jesus and we're going to see what we can learn how to approach our Father. The first way that we learn to pray by listening to Jesus is that we learn to pray reverently. Last week, James mentioned that often we address God as dear Heavenly Father. What did that mean for us? It means that our Lord is heavenly. It means that He is capable. It means that He is powerful. It means that He is able to do something about our circumstances. But then when we address Him as Father, it means that He is caring that he loves his children, that he's caring and capable. And Jesus addresses the Lord as his Father six times in this passage, but he addresses him in a unique way. Actually, I think the only place in Scripture that God is called by this name, if my Bible work search is correct. If not, all of you theologians can correct me later. Look at verse 11. Jesus says, Holy Father. And down in verse 25, which we didn't read, Jesus called him Righteous Father. What does it mean to be holy? 
Probably not what you think, right? Doesn't mean that you're uptight. Doesn't mean that you're stodgy. What does it actually mean to be holy? The biblical idea of holiness is to be set apart. To be separated for something. To be different. Set apart. Isaiah 40.25 says it this way. God is saying this to his people. He says, I am the Holy One. To whom will you liken me? To whom will you compare me? Most of you know that I grew up in East Tennessee. So that means I love the mountains. And my hero is Davy Crockett. I'm kind of following his path in life from East Tennessee to Washington, D.C. And then I plan to go die in Texas at the end of my life. (laughs) I love the mountains. I do. You know, Jesus went to pray in the mountains a lot. Why do you think he went to the mountains to pray? Well, in some places we're told he went to pray in the mountains so that he could get away from the crowds to be alone. But I think he went to the mountains for other reasons. I think he might have gone to the mountains for some of the same reasons that I go to the mountains. When I sit on a mountaintop and I look at the beauty before me, do you know what I feel? Do you know what I sense? I get perspective. I get clarity. I feel small compared to the mountains. I bet all of you have felt that way in some way in your life. Maybe you've visited the Grand Canyon before. You know, no one goes to the Grand Canyon to feel large. (laughs) You look at it and you feel small. No one looks at the ocean and thinks that they can drink all of it. No one looks at the stars in the sky. No one looks at the sand on the beach and thinks, I could count that. No one thinks they can go to a father-daughter dance and wear slippers And no pants, and that's a good idea. Some of you were here last week. You'll feel out of place. You'll know you don't belong. You see, that's what holiness is. It's getting a sense of the infinite beauty of God in such a way that you feel small. Rudolf Otto, who was a comparative religion scholar in the early 1900s, He wrote the idea of the holy. And this is what he said. He said the main thing that all religions have in common is that when they approached the holy, they felt radically unholy. You know what it means, right? It was our prayer of confession this morning. This is what it means that God is holy. In the Father's presence, we are undone and we become aware of ourselves. In your perfection, We realize our imperfection. In your achievements, we see our failures. In your love, we feel our rebellion. That's what it means to approach the Father reverently. It is to appreciate, to know, to feel the otherness of God. We see this all throughout Scripture. We see this when Moses was approaching the burning bush. And the Lord said to Moses, take off your sandals. You're on holy ground. We know this in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah becomes so aware of his uncleanness and the cleanness of God that he says, woe unto me. We see this in Job, when Job sees the infinite wisdom of God, he 
feels foolish. And perhaps there's no greater picture than Zechariah chapter 3 when Joshua the holy priest is standing before the Lord and he is covered in excrement. He's aware of the otherness of God. Even Jesus, a member of the Trinity, approaches Holy Father reverently. And the reaction that we have when we approach a holy God, we become aware of who we are. We realize how desperate we are. And that's the second thing that we see in this passage about how Jesus approached the Lord. He approached the Lord desperately. In verse 1, it says, The hour has now come. What's the hour? All throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus would perform these miracles and they would want him to do other things and he would say, I can't, my hour has not yet come. Up until when? John chapter 14, when he says, My hour has come to do what? To depart from this world. Do you know when he's praying this prayer? It's Thursday night. Tomorrow is crucifixion. Tomorrow he is going to walk the road to Calvary. He's spending the last 24 hours of his life on earth before his crucifixion and he is spending them with his closest friends, his disciples, and he's crying out to his heavenly father in desperation. He's not wasting any words. He's being mindful of every breath. We know this well, right? We know when we have a loved one in the hospital, we don't waste words. When my grandmother, whom we affectionately called Meemaw, was dying from kidney failure, she was on dialysis for a time, but when she went into the hospital for the last time and we were told it could be days or hours, all of the family got there as quickly as possible to the hospital room. And when we got there, what do you think we talked about? The weather, the Braves, definitely not this year, or the Nats. What did we talk about? We had meaningful conversations about how much we loved one another. We talked about the important things in life. You see, that's what Jesus is doing in John chapter 17. In the last few hours of his life, he is crying out in desperation. You know, Jesus three times in the Gospels said we should approach the Father like little children. What does it mean to approach God like a little child? I think one of the ways, one of them, what it looks like is to come in desperation. You know, children when they are infants, they can't feed themselves. They can't protect themselves. They are desperate for your care. And without it, they will die. Last night, I was walking over here to get ready for this morning. Yes, I was walking. I live right next door. Be jealous of my commute. Um, hate me later. As I was leaving my house, I heard my almost one-year-old, my youngest son, come crawling on all fours towards me. And from the other room, I heard him say for the first time, Dada. And you know what I did? I turned around and I looked at him and I said, No, it's Daddy. <laughs> Or you may call me Father or Mr. Stevenson. 
And if you believe that, you probably need counseling. <laughs> no, what did I do? He came desperately, and what did I do? I got down on all fours, and I scooped him up, and I hugged, and I kissed him. I tried to get him to say it again, and I made sure Kelly heard it, that he said, my name first, Dada. <laughs> if Jesus is desperate for the Father, how much more are we desperate for the Father? Do you understand that this is the basic requirement to be a Christian? Do you understand that if you think Christianity is about cleaning up your life and then coming to church, then you don't understand Christianity at all. The only contribution that you make to your salvation is your sin. We come broken. We come out of slavery. We come out of bondage. But we come and do you know what we find? We find a loving Father who scoops us up. Friends, I have good news. In our desperation, we meet a personal God. And that's the third way that we see Jesus pray in chapter 17. He prays personally. You see, the first two points are this. We approach God reverently because of who He is. He's holy. We approach Him desperately because of who we are. We are unholy. But we can approach Him personally because of who Jesus is. And that's what He is saying to the Father in those first five verses. He says, glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. The Trinity, the God of the Bible, is utterly unique. Unique that He is a personal God, not an impersonal force. Unique that He is tri-personal. That from the beginning of time, before the foundations of the world, the Father was loving the Son, and the Son was loving the Spirit, and the Spirit was glorifying the Father in perfect love. Love is intrinsic to His nature. And you see, at one time, at one time, in the beginning of time, in the Garden of Eden, we were in the midst of this Trinitarian relationship in the Garden of Eden, and Adam and Eve walked and talked with God, and they experienced perfect covenantal love. But what happened? They committed cosmic treason, and they were kicked out of the Garden. Why? Because no unholy thing can be in the presence of the holy and cherubim and seraphim with flaming swords were put at the gate to the Garden of Eden to protect Adam and Eve because if they try to come back in the Garden of Eden, they will be killed because nothing unholy can be in the presence of a holy God. So what are we to do? Jesus tells us in John chapter 17 that His whole mission, His whole purpose was to make you and me holy. To make us righteous again so that we can be in the presence of the Father once again. Do you understand this from Genesis chapter 15? When God made a covenant with Abram, 
He said, I am going to multiply you. Out of you will come a great nation. And from your posterity will become the Messiah who will save the world. And Abram says, this is too good to be true. How can I know? And they ratified the covenant in the traditional ancient Near Eastern way. What did they do? They took animals and they separated them. They cut them in two. And when two parties are making this covenant, the lesser party is supposed to walk in between the torn apart animals, symbolizing if I break my end of the covenant, may I be separated like these animals. But Abraham was shocked. Abram should have been the one to walk through the animals. But instead, the smoking fire pot, the flaming torch, the presence of God passes in between the animals. And Jesus is saying, the flaming torch is here. And I am Him. I am going to be separated from the Father I am going to be cut apart from my most cherished relationship so that you may be set apart for relationship with the Father. And he's praying to his heavenly Father and he's saying, it's almost done. Glorify me again. I left all my glory. I emptied myself of glory. I came to earth. I was born under the curse of the law. I was born to a woman. I lived my life in this way. And Father, it's almost done. Are you proud of me? And we know the Father was proud of Jesus. We know at the beginning of His public ministry, He looked down from heaven and He said, That's my boy. And I love him. And Jesus is saying, are you proud of me now, Father? It's almost finished. Glorify me. And the Father glorifies Him. There's an amazing thing in this chapter. The Father, our Creator, made us so that we might share in this relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit Everything that you are looking for in life, the love that all of you crave, can only be found in one place. The love from a personal God. Let's apply this to our own prayer life. You know, over and over in chapter 17, Jesus talks about truth and word and manifestation of His glory. He is talking about theology. He is talking about who He is and what He's done. You see, in our prayer life, we don't meditate and empty our minds and think about nothing. What do we do in our prayer life? We fixate on who Christ was, who He is, what He did. We meditate on the attributes of God. And as we think deeply cognitively about who He is. The Holy Spirit applies that truth to our heart and it ignites us in holy passion and holy worship. We have a personal relationship with a personal God who actually came in time and space and history. And we have a personal relationship with Him because why? Because Jesus said, I'll be separated from you, Father, that they might be separated for you. If we could get a hold of that truth, 
it would transform us. It would transform us to pray in the fourth way that Jesus does. He prays to the Father submissively. It's the whole entire tone of this prayer. He says, so that the Son may glorify you. How do you glorify God? It's a catechism question. By loving Him and doing what He commands. And Jesus says, I have loved you. I have submitted my will to you. You sent me. You gave me. I came from you. You have given me. And we see this reach, its culmination in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is sweating blood and He says what? Not my will, but your will be done. You see, when we encounter a holy God, a heavenly Father, it only makes sense for us to bend our will to His. If He really is infinitely wise, if He really is infinitely loving, then He knows how our lives ought to go better than us. This is normal in life, right? Just took my family to the dentist and the dentist, you know, says... We've got to pull these teeth. We've got to move all this around. And we trust the dentist. Why? Because we think he's working for our benefit. And we think he's capable of keeping us having a nice smile. <laughs> How much more is the Lord infinitely wise and infinitely loving that we submit to his will? You know, one of the barriers which James is going to talk about in a few weeks... One of the barriers to prayer is often sovereignty. But Jesus in this passage, He knows. He knows what tomorrow holds. He knows that He's about to go to the cross. And even though the sovereignty of God is apparent and His plan has been laid out before the foundation of the world, He prays. God's sovereignty for Jesus is not a deterrent to His prayer life. It's motivation for it. One pastor said, it's because, you see, for us, our prayer life is often only medicine. But for Jesus, his prayer life was food. He's communing with the Father. He's submitting his will to him. Martin Luther, most of you would know that name. He had a friend named Philip Melanchthon. And Philip was known as a worrier. And so what Luther used to say to him to give him this theological jolt He used to look at him when he was full of anxiety and full of worry. And he would say, let Philip cease to rule the world. You see, if we could get our minds around one thing in this passage, it would transform our holiness, our obedience. Jesus says he does all of these things for our sake. You see... The Father looks at us and He treats us like His Son, like Christ. And He will withhold nothing that is good from us. Now listen, we still live in a fallen world. And Romans says that all things can work together for the good of those who love Him, right? For His glory. But notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say all things are good. But all things can glorify God and work for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. If we could get our minds around that for our sake, 
He became sin. For our sake, He laid down His life for us so that when we pray, we would say, Father, if You love me this much, I'm willing to do anything for You. It's an either or. It's not conditional. It's absolute. When my will comes up against a Father's will, His always wins. Friends, Jesus teaches us a lot about prayer in this passage from His example. He teaches us to pray reverently because of who He is. He teaches us to pray desperately because of who we are. He teaches us to pray personally because of who Jesus is. And He teaches us to pray submissively because of what He has provided. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, this truly is the holiest of holiest chapters in the Bible. That we get this amazing picture of seeing the Son commune with the Father. So Lord, as we approach this table even now, let us commune with You, with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As we come desperately seeking what only You can provide by grace, through faith, feed us. Father, we ask You to do these things for the sake of Your Son, whom You have promised to glorify. In Jesus' name, Amen.